the CU 2.0 podcast. When I look at the, the psyche of some of the bankers in the larger space, they see this as a threat because it's exposing the hard-earned customers and the products that they have built up from a, a relationship perspective and share of wallet. But on the flip side of that, if they thought about it differently, and certainly if the community banks were to uh, embrace this, I think the opportunity is to have a better understanding of their members or their customers and have a broader sense of the financial services and products that they already have in play so that they can give better advice and provide those consumers with better knowledge about what's going to be fiscally responsible for them going over. One site to rule them all. This is the banking version of the Tolkien quest for the one ring that rules them all. Call this open banking. Remember that phrase. It's about to get much buzzier and louder over the next year as open banking transforms how U.S. financial institutions interact with each other, also with their consumers. Scott Anderson, brand evangelist at Diebold Nextdoor, sat down at the company's DN Interest Sect event to tell us why open banking, a big issue in Europe right now, is heading your way. It's not just a European thing anymore becoming a U.S. thing, too. Welcome to the CU 2.0 podcast. This is your host, Robert McGarvey. Our guest today, Scott Anderson. Imagine one site where your member sees everything financial, inside the credit union and outside. Imagine a site where the consumer can decide what to use to pay for this purchase in this moment. How cool is that? It's also terrifying to some financial institutions. Scares the devil out of them. Institution ceases to be a walled garden, becomes instead an open transit point, an open transaction point. Will consumers flee? Hold on, what kind of question is that? Why should they? If their needs are getting served, they'll stay put. If their needs are getting served at your financial institution, they will stay put. In many ways, Anderson is optimistic about the impact of open banking, which definitely is coming our way, on smaller FIs such as credit unions. One hitch, however, how do credit unions get enough data to play meaningfully in this universe? Anderson sees credit unions working in alliances with fintechs, CUSOs perhaps, to create an even playing field with big banks when it comes to open banking. Just maybe it's the biggest FIs that have the most to lose in an open banking universe as their consumers get to see more options. Maybe they'll choose better options. Maybe they'll choose options outside the big institutions. Think on that and think about how to win your institution's share in a universe of open banking. It's coming, it's coming soon. This podcast, by the way, is one of a group of four recorded on-site at the Devault Nextdoor DN Intersect Conference in Las Vegas, September 2019. It's a good group. Listen to all four. Today we're going to talk about open banking and the impacts and opportunities that presents. Great. Is it a great opportunity? I think it is a great opportunity. I think there's there's a double-edged sword here. Um, if you think about open banking and what it's meant for other organizations globally, when I look at the, the psyche of some of the bankers in the larger space, they see this as a threat because it's exposing the hard-earned customers and the products that they have built up from a, a relationship perspective and share of wallet. But on the flip side of that, 
if they thought about it differently, and certainly if the community banks were to uh, embrace this, I think the opportunity is to have a better understanding of their members or their customers and have a broader sense of the financial services and products that they already have in play so that they can give better advice and provide those consumers with better knowledge about what's going to be fiscally responsible for them going home. Credit unions and community banks have been talking about data analytics and consumers for at least 10 years. Most of them made very, very little progress. Mm -hmm. I've talked with Howard about why. It's essentially a lack of data science skills. How's this, are they still going to lack data science skills? That's an interesting conundrum because I think with a lot of the community banks too, they're fairly limited in their resources. They're pretty lean. Uh, they don't have a lot of uh, bandwidth to be able to take on big projects such as data analysis. And that's where I think the industry is moving more towards a decision within the IT functions, within the, the credit unions, the banks themselves, of do I build it, do I buy it, or do I partner? And I think this is an opportunity to lend itself to community banking spaces to look for partners out there to say, hey, I may not have A, the fortitude, B, the money, or the talent in-house to get this done quickly, and this is my opportunity to leap forward. So I think if we start looking at some of the fintech organizations out there, uh, perhaps it's some of the non-traditional players in the marketplace that can help them with data analytics. That's really going to give them a step ahead because my belief is a lot of the larger banks do have some of those data analysts in-house, but I think they're somewhat stuck in a paradigm of looking at their own data and not looking at the bigger picture. They also have the luxury of having data where the yes. data is actually kind of interesting. For I, I think that's probably true, but if they were to look at the overall payments history and data that is being generated. Uh, and with open banking, I think there is an opportunity to start leveraging data that may be outside of their own four walls um, and start thinking about ways to make inferences about buying patterns, spending patterns, um, debt loads to be more personalized in the approach of the product recommendations that they're making. So I, I don't think they could go out per se and buy the data, but I think there's enough content out in the industry today where aggregation of data could give them good indices if they were to start then looking at segmentation of their own consumer base and their member base and start drawing inferences at least as a starting point to be more personalized in their approach. Why is Europe all over the bank? And why is the U.S. lagging this it's, That's an interesting conundrum and I think the key point there is there is a, um, a regulatory push towards open banking in the European market. So if you look at the PSD2 or the payment service directive that's coming out of the European committees, uh, that's really enforcing this broader landscape of competition and open access to information with opt-in from the consumer. I think that's an important point. Uh, so whilst there's a lot of pressure for the larger banks to comply with this, this also has to have the consumer's best mind in, in, in interest by allowing them to opt into this option as well. So it has to be a win-win for both sides. That being a mandated process within the European space, um, in particular you know, the EU and the UK, that's really helped push that forward. Now, there have been dates that have been established by um, the, the uh, European Union for compliance with this. They have slipped, but I think if they really embrace this and open up their thinking to say this is better for my consumer and their financial well-being because we have a broader look at the entire landscape versus just what I have in my own four walls, I think this will make a difference. If I look across the pond into the North American space, I think there's some startup thinking about this, but it's more of a collaborative approach so far. Um, you don't see the Fed, you don't see... Um, 
NACHA, you don't see any of those organizations enforcing it, but suggesting it. And I think as we go forward, that may change. And we're seeing countries such as Mexico, which were more collaborative in the beginning, pushing more towards a regulatory um, opportunity here as well. I, I, I liken it a lot to you know, a reticence, at least in the early days, for EMV in the North American space and how that took hold and how now we've had to move forward from that. And I see a similar type of a uh, process going forward with, with open banking. In Europe, EMV means basically a, a, a Code mm -hmm. in America now, our consumers are too stupid. Still, you know. still chip and signature. <laughs> so, I mean, will, will we do the same thing with open banking? I think, well, if I, if I were to fast forward, I believe the role of the plastic card is going to evolve. Um, and I think that's where EMV will have some legs in the future um, because the mobile device will be able to carry those credentials and fulfill. Open banking, I think, is going to have the same effect because if we think about a person's mobile device and if they were to um, go to a, an information aggregator, some, it could be the credit union, it could be a fintech, it could be a partnership between the two, that mobile device, unlike a card, is going to give them access through APIs and through protocols connected to, to the entire financial system to bring in all of that consumer's information into one portal. That portal may be on the credit union's website, it may be on a fintech's website, it may be on a big bank's website, but I think that's where we're going to see the move. Does this have anything to do with the European push for real-time settlement? I think payments is a big part of it. It's probably, I call it one leg on the stool. It, it, it certainly gives a precedent to say this, this has a purpose. It has um, a fulfillment for faster processing of payments. But I think it, it, you need to look at it in a bigger picture. And that is, look at it from the consumer's point of view. I think settlement of payments is one piece of it. But if I have a, a broader picture and I have more knowledge by clicking into one space or talking to my advisor and they have a full point of view of my entire financial holdings, then I think it's quite different. So I believe that it's, it payments will be the precipitator to get this thing going in certain marketplaces, but I don't think it will be the, the real winner in, in that regard. So what's in it for the consumer? I think if you, if you were to think about yourself in a situation, you know, you're about to go shopping online and you decide you want to make a payment, if you have the opportunity to see all of your holdings through a payment uh, um, aggregator or, or, or a web portal and be able to make a choice based on real-time data about balances, about upcoming uh, payments or debits coming out of my account, about cash flow in certain accounts in real time, that gives the consumer more power around their purchasing decision. Flip side to that, um, from a financial institution perspective, if I'm giving advice to my consumer around looking at the entire financial holdings that they have, perhaps evaluating the various points of debt that they have and the stage they are in their current um, life cycle, you know, maybe they're newly married, maybe they've just purchased a home, so giving them better advice around revolving credit or suit-to-purpose loans or um, home equity for major renovations. In real time, I think that really empowers the consumer to make better decisions around their financial health. Who will sell the consumers on that? I think it's going to be a combination of um, both the regulatory environment as well as the financial environment itself. I think the FIs, if they can embrace this and show the value to a consumer of a single point of reference to all of my financial holdings. I, I mean, I don't have the specific statistic, but we all know that a, 
a consumer doesn't just bank with one financial institution. They have products everywhere. And I don't think in the current commodity-based product world of banking that's going to change anytime soon. But to make it more convenient for a customer to see everything at a glance and to understand the impacts of debt over here versus savings over here, I think if we can get those messages right and get that data in front of them at the moments that matter, when they're making purchases, when they're making investment decisions, when, when they're deciding what to do about their financial future, I think there's going to be value add. When do you think the, the money center banks will get the And I ask because if you look at MRDC, it's Chase that made consumers want And suddenly credit unions community banks had people knocking. And if you have that picture thing, <laughs> no, we don't have that picture thing. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it was Chase that with, with nationwide television advertising saying, this is cool, you're going to want it. And, uh, and they will do the same thing, not necessarily Chase, but Chase, Wells, Bank of America, and the five or six money center banks will, will do this. When do you think they will be the ones to drive this? Well, if we look at regulatory-based uh, open banking, um, there's a mandate for large banks to comply. So if you look at the UK as an example, the large nine had to comply and had to comply early. If I you know, transfer that into what I think might happen, crystal ball, here in North America, I think the large FIs, if they look at the threats that folks like Amazon present, I think they're going to see that Amazon could become a bank without much trouble, has the data to understand the consumers. So I think we're going to see more interest from the larger FIs actually push forward with open banking concepts because they're going to see their own consumer base and product base erode as a result of that. I think from the credit union small community bank perspective though, if you look at some of the data that's out there, consumers are more willing to stay with those financial institutions because of the personalized experience. So they would probably be more benefit of an open banking environment because that's going to allow them to aggregate information and become even better at advising their members on how to make better financial decisions. So I think there's going to be, now that we're somewhat through the EMV uh, challenge, um, now that banks are taking on the Windows 10 challenge, uh, I think we will see open banking become more prevalent, I'm going to say, over the next 12 to 18 months, at least from a planning perspective and a what does this mean to my consumer and to my infrastructure perspective. Yeah, I could tell you, credit unions have been talking about data analytics for five to ten years. 90% have made essentially no progress, no meaningful progress. I'm sure people hear this will scream at me. <laughs> it's true, it's true, guys. The reality is. <laughs> this is you didn't say that, I said it. <laughs> um, what makes you, what, why, why should we be more optimistic in this case? I think the, 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 the commerce of data is becoming more and more forefront. Uh, you can't survive without understanding your customer better um, when you're trying to sell them a product, give them a service, provide advice. If you don't start embracing this, and as I, as I mentioned earlier, it doesn't mean you have to build it yourself and, and have all the right analytical genius minds in, in your organization. I think there's going to be a lot more willingness, openness, openness to uh, partner and to start looking at how I can uh, leverage the data that I do have and augment it with publicly consumable data to make better informed decisions for my consumers. So I think 
um, the push towards data analytics is has to happen. Uh, we can't survive, I don't think, in a commodity-based banking environment without having that knowledge because consumers expect it, they demand it. They want to have that personalized experience that is about me in my context, not because I you know, fit a demographic that says I should be able to have a home equity line of credit uh, pre-approved. It has to be. It has to be deeper than that. It has to have more personalized capabilities around recommending the product, the, the interest rate, the how the payments would be structured, all based on your personal context. And I think that's where data and the concept of open banking can support that, because now we have a, a full picture of what's possible based on all of the holdings that that consumer has, not just with my FI. Do you have any opinions about? Um, credit unions and they talk about data lakes. <laughs> and, and I can't recall the, the quote, but it's it's a good one, which is we have lakes of information but puddles of insights. And and it's true. Um, we generate more data than we know what to do with, uh, and that's where the partnership comes in again. I mean, if you look at somebody like an Amazon or some of those larger disruptor fintechs, they're doing a good job of investing in that data analysis. And those data lakes whether they be private based on your own content or whether they be aggregated in some way with an opt-in um, to, to allow consumers to contribute to the data lake and for the FIs to then make inferences out of that data lake that may be based on aggregated information versus it being very specific and personal. I don't think any of the regulatory bodies in North America nor anywhere else in the banking industry are going to allow you know, large, large pools of data that are unregulated and where consumer data protection isn't there. That just won't happen, in my opinion. But I do believe that there's going to be a move where data will be the, the new commodity and we can monetize that data at the aggregate levels to make better decisions. What makes you think Amazon wants to be a bank? If I had to guess, I would guess that they don't want to be a bank. They'll do what Intuit did, which is let's eat up these profitable bank-like functions Let's not be bad. Let's, let's, let's dominate home mortgages. No, we don't want to be bad. I, I, I tend to agree with you. I think they love the position they're in, though, and the, and the potential threat that it has. So it, it's, it's more of a Goliath um, mentality to say, pay attention to me, and my consumers are, I'm getting what I need out of my consumers, I think is what Amazon would say. Um, they have the inferences, the consumers are coming back and buying because they're giving them recommended products that make sense. Banks and credit unions and the financial industry as a whole hasn't really picked up on that. So I think Amazon's just having fun in, in, in being that potential threat out there. Maybe they won't become a bank, but I think they could very easily. Plus, what you're saying reminds me of what people said 10 years ago about Walmart. <laughs> right. And I imagine Bezos is sitting there saying, you know, if they Walmart becomes a bank, they're becoming a bank. But until they do, we're not. Right. That is that I, I tend to agree. Are, how are they selling open banking to consumers? What language are they using? Open banking is like a banker term. And every banker will hear that and say, oh, I know what that means. We've been closed forever. Mm -hmm. so now we're going to be open. Consumer doesn't know any of that. So what, what kind of language? I think the language is uh, it's about having uh, an aggregated point of view on all of your holdings, regardless of which logo it might reside under. Uh, it's also around uh, securing that information. So, you know, from, from a, a consumer protection perspective, it's around, you know, three pieces of security, something you are, something you know, and something you have. Um, and I think those types of language uh, topics to a consumer puts their mind at ease that if I log into a portal, be it Bank ABC's portal or some fintech portal, and I have 
all of those um, regulatory and assurances from the FIs telling me that my data is secure, I think that's what's helping them understand this is a value to me because then I'm making more informed decisions on my overall financial picture, not just on what I have as a holding at your financial institution. Is that terribly different from what Mint has offered for some years? So I think Mint is, is it's similar in that regard, but it's not through open APIs and having that data share that, that is more structured, that can be more globalized. So it's a very, I think, specific use case that, that sort of tips its toe into the open banking space without it being a robust, widely adoptable solution. Once you have those connections into all of the financial institutions, once you have a consumer opting in for that, then it is quite feasible for them to have that, that bigger picture. Uh, and, and I think that's where we're going to see some of the value at. I, I, it's really going to put the consumer more in the driver's seat around making decisions around what's the right debt instrument for purchases, you know, what's my right cash flow mix. But it'll also allow, I think, financial institutions, and in particular personal bankers or relationship managers, make more informed um, advice-giving um, scenarios to their consumers as well. Before we go, the CU 2.0 podcast is looking for a few good sponsors to help us spread the word about the digital transformation of credit unions. You could be one of them. Contact Robert McGarvey for details at rjmcgarvey at gmail.com. First come, first served. Again, that's rjmcgarvey at gmail.com. The CU 2.0 podcast.